Welcome to Farming Eternal, an eternal podcast for farmers, hosted by me, Patrick, or Padumaro, and Hats on Lamps. It's episode 94. For those of you tuning in for the first time, we are a draft-focused podcast. Our goal is to help you and me, mostly me, get better at draft. We get into the nitty-gritty of the drafting process with a little meta-analysis and play tips thrown in. So this week, we're going to do one last draft primer. And in order to do that, I brought my always co-host, Hats on Lamps. Hello. And Cotillion. I made it this week. Yeah. Know who didn't make it? Cotillion's show notes. (laughs) You got those last week. (laughs) But that's okay, because just just in the nick of time, uh, Direwolf Digital put out a draft primer, which we are going to use as our show notes for this episode. <laughs> and next, and the week after this, we're going to have Direwolf Digital on. <laughs> and then somebody else will do the show notes. Yeah. Fingers. <laughs> um, all right. So uh, now that you know what this episode's about, you could actually just turn it off and read the primer, or you can keep on listening, really. Yeah, we're going to have thoughts about it. It's not going to be just reading the primer verbatim. (laughs) (laughs) For some of us. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so we'll go straight into announcements so we can get on to this draft primer. Um, So first off, you can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash farmingeternal. It's... What we have to support the show helps pay for server costs, um, boosts my ego, things like that. And then for as little as a dollar a month, you can get access to our show notes, recording bloopers. You can nudge us towards any Patreon goals we might ever have. Um, and you can also get food, as Steve Irwin will um, eventually find out. And you get a shout out uh, each and every week on the show. So thank you to Steve Irwin, Disc Golf Dan, Cotillion, Low-Key Trickster, Sigma Tank, Mercurio Blue, Abinago, Meagles, Madness, Parmalee, Darth Herman 2, Twin Hex, Jed the Hummerage, Raven Dragon, Esrich0215, Possibly Psychologist, Sunblaze, Worked on Sun, and Yes Stout. Thank you. Thank you to all of you. <laughs> I was waiting for you to say thank you or something, but... I did, and then I did. <laughs> I know. <don't. laughs> <laughs> okay, how, how was your job? That's all right. <laughs> well, I, I just wanted to. I just wanted to say, why are we doing uh, another draft primer? Why are we doing it? Well, I just because we kind of didn't make it to the draft primer part until the very end of last episode, and I figured not many people made it all the way. I barely made it all the way to the end. So sure. So for those who didn't. I thought we could do another quick one and devote a full episode to it. And I'm going to try to get this one out before. Oh, I see what you're doing there. You don't. You want me to talk about the draft open that's happening this week? Yeah. Like, why are we doing a draft primer this far into a draft season, basically? Yeah. No, I see it. I see what you did there. You threw a little softball to me and oh, that's <laughs> out of the park here. <laughs> By oh, the way, Cotillion, this is as in sync as we ever get. <laughs> I like it. It only, yeah. it only took the you softball directly at me, and uh, <laughs> this is the banter that everyone tunes in for, as far as I can tell. <laughs> it is. It is. Anyway, yeah. So this week on Friday and Saturday is the qualifying runs for the dra- the fu- 
5K draft open. Um, and then Sunday will be the top 64. Um, and the format of this, we now, I guess, know the format. We might not have known it last week. It's known to be four seven-game uh, draft runs. So you're going to get to do four drafts, and then you play seven games, win or lose. Um, and then at the end of your four runs, your record will decide whether you qualify for the top 64. And uh, the other interesting thing about this compared to a normal ECQ, uh, constructed one, which is also 28 games, is you pay per run. So um, you don't actually have to pay for all four runs, which is kind of nice if you end up going, say, like, 0-14. After the first two runs, you can decide to pack it in. Um, but you also have a chance to get a premium or non-premium alt-art cruel if you won for each run. So that might incentivize you to do all four runs, no matter your record. Uh, anything further, Hats? No, uh, that's 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 a great rundown. Um... Yeah, I I think it'll be I think it would be very interesting if I had played no draft up until this point and then just jumped into this uh, into this format in time for a big tournament uh, with a lot at stake. But maybe that would be very freeing in a way because uh, yeah. the stakes would be low. <laughs> well, I know some very good players are doing that. Um, Popetito, who has made I think the world championship twice, said on Discord. Uh, not our Discord, the main Discord this past week, that uh, last week was his first ever week drafting. And in that week, he managed to get into the top 10 um, of Masters. So that was uh, pretty impressive. He said he was having a lot of fun. So I think that is a good recommendation for draft. Um, But it it also shows just how good the good players of Eternal are. Uh, yeah, there will be a lot of competition from folks we're not used to competing against. Yes. Yeah, I've already seen that. I've already seen the new names um, on the you know playing in the queues, and yeah, uh, they're they're really good. Um, some of them uh, I've never seen before, but I've heard of, and I mean they've come in and uh, put together really really impressive decks um, with obviously really solid play. So um, yeah, it should be a competitive tournament this weekend. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's been very exciting that, um, you know, so many people have joined into the draft queues. I kind of, I mentioned on our discord that I, I wish they could, uh, structure next year's draft qualifiers, um, in, in more of a way to incentivize people to play draft, not just in the two weeks preceding, uh, the draft open, um, I think last year, I'm sure had had some issues, like there was only one tournament, but that really incentivized people to play month after month to try to, you know, get the 80 points needed to qualify right into day two. And I wish, you know, I think that was too much. Like, I wish there were more steps, you know, like if you get masters each month for the three months, you get, you know your free win or whatever, or something just to incentivize more people to stay in the queues instead of everyone just playing for two weeks. Yeah. It was a little weird because it was month after month that, uh, where you could uh, accumulate points for that one tournament. Um, 
uh, if they had more tournaments that if they had more draft centric tournaments and you could pre-qualify for day two of them by by playing draft regularly leading up to that uh, i think it would make more sense having I, I don't remember how many months it added up to total but it was most of a year that let you uh, qualify for the second day of that one tournament. And that didn't, that doesn't really accomplish what they want it to. I don't think. Yeah. Well, it was, yeah, because I think it was eight months because getting top 100 masters gave you 10 points and you needed 80 points yeah. to qualify. But yeah, my issue with that one was not only that there was only one tournament, but also there was like, either you had to get top 100 eight months in a row or hit masters once in eight months to get your five points to qualify for the tournament. You know, so it was like the, all you had to do was hit masters one time in eight months and you qualified for this tournament, which, which if you, as soon as you realized you were never getting 80 points, meant you no longer really had to play draft. Uh, yeah, yeah, it didn't work to incentivize things quite the way they intended, I don't think. But that just comes down, I think, to uh, that just comes down to the number of draft tournaments they they have. Probably, yeah. if they if they if they uh, I, they do seem to be taking draft a little bit more seriously now. So I am hoping that means they figure out the right. I'm hoping that means they figure out that that, that they give draft prizes for people who draft, but that's probably a little bit too much to hope for. <laughs> but at least uh, they might um, they might get the the incentive uh, pri- uh, the incentive prizes sort of correct for for the um, for the big draft tournaments at some point, or I don't know. Uh, the incentives to play, rather. Uh, yeah. The incentives to play draft leading up to a tournament, um, because it is nice to have more of the more of the good players actually taking part in draft, just to shake things up. It's so weird playing against the same people for months and then having people show up in droves for the last for the for just this two weeks. It's nice, but it would be great if they could if they could even things out. So that was all year round. Yeah. And so it didn't happen right in the middle of uh, draft uh, bot get in. Yeah, it's utter chaos now because <laughs> between the bot drafts and people who are good players but are not, um, uh, you know, familiar with the format, there's no such thing as signals right now. It is all over the place. Yeah. So how about Cotillion? Uh, how was your week? Yeah, so my week, I think it was a little hectic. Um, I started off doing really well. I think I was, um, I started off rank eight to top 10. Um, and then when the bot draft, the bot packs hit, um, yeah, I started to really tank, actually. Um, I didn't play the first two days because I thought they would, the bot packs would have been diluted by then, but apparently not. Um, and I don't know if they're still totally gone. Um, I was watching a streamer today and, you know, they got like a, a pick eight or 10 martial efficiency. Um, and it's just, you know, it's, so it, it's tough to it's tough to tell where this what the state of the bot packs are right now. Um, they're definitely going away, but I don't know if they'll be totally gone by the start of the tournament. Um, but anyway, so once the bot packs hit, um, I went on a 
tough streak. I went from rank 12 uh, to, I think, 41 um, over the course of four days. And now I'm slowly climbing back up. I think I'm, you know, in the low 20s right now. Um, but it's been tough to figure out what's going on with the format due to the bot packs. I mean, how, how you know, how are you supposed to know, um, you know, what's going on when you have you know, a, a computer making picks where with a tournament, you're not going to have that, hopefully. Um, so it, it's been tough. But in general, I've, I've, I've seen that the format is definitely much faster. Um, games are decided earlier. And I don't see board stalls, or at least I haven't seen board stalls too too often. Um, but some of the successful decks that I had were uh, Praxis Sentinels. Um, I did have uh, two Argentport um, flyer decks go uh, six and seven wins, respectively. And then um, a Horu Soldier uh, deck that went um, six wins. And another one, I think, that went five wins. So... Yeah, I mean, there, there, there's there's ways to be successful right now, but it, it is. It's like Hat said, it's a little chaotic. Why do you yeah, think the um, Why do you oh, think sorry. the format is so fast? Is it the changes um, that they made to the packs, or is it more um, Is it more that because things are kind of uh, in chaos as far as signals, it's just easier for people to make uh, an effective aggro deck because maybe their opponent won't have a, a deck that, it, um, because it takes more, uh, more a more cohesive deck to mount a, an appropriate defense than it does to just slap some stuff on the ground and attack with it. Yeah, um, I think it's probably both. Uh, to cheat on your on your on your question there. Um, mm-hmm. I've been seeing a lot of like bashers, barricade bashers have made a resurgence. Um, and, you know, which kind of harkens back to when uh, what the first format of Empire of Glass uh, started. That's, you know, that was the defining card, barricade basher. And it seems like that is making a little bit of a comeback, um, seeing a lot of barricade bashers. And it also may be just because, like you said, a lot of there's a lot of new drafters and maybe those new drafters tend to uh, want to play aggro. Um, they're a little bit more comfortable doing that. Um, but it's, it's hard to really put your finger on it. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. Cause um, in, uh, I saw a comment from Sunnyvale sort of talking about how they've been finding this format grindy which um, sort of went against what Hats and I were predicting in the last episode. And I kind of attributed the grindy feel for Sunnyvale to the fact that you are still having a lot of um, bot pack remnants, which means people were just um, playing greedier, more bomb-heavy decks, which were making games... um, which are making games grindier, but actually my intuition would be that as those bot packs sort of leave the system, the format would speed up as these like old stalwarts of the format, like you were saying, like with bashers and Rakano started to, to shine through. Yeah. It it, it may also be where you are on the ladder. 
Um, I think I played Sunnyvale uh, yesterday, which is Monday, um, and he was in gold. So um, maybe it's a little more grindier, uh, you know, down, you know, because I imagine he just started drafting and practicing um, for the Open. So, you know, he started out at a lower rank and maybe that's maybe it's just grindier down there. But um, my, my impression has not been that it's slow. It's that it's very, very fast. Yeah, and I, that was kind of my impression of what it would be. The one thing that uh, caused me pause in my uh, overconfident uh, proclamation from last episode was, like, thinking back this week, I um, Justice did lose a lot of pump, so that made me wonder if the f- fast decks would be slightly slower than they used to be because there just were like fewer ways to get damage, even if there still are a fair number of ways, you know, losing rabble rouser and losing the, the four cost two, two and stuff, you know, that does hurt a little bit, but as you said, I think it will be a pretty fast format. All right, cool. So is that, uh, how was your draft week, Potomaru? Uh My draft week was okay. I've only done one draft. I've kind of s- still been drafting at a, a slower pace. I had I waited a couple days after the bat, bot packs um, were kind of going through, and then I drafted a really sweet Argent Port deck that I think disappointedly went four three. Um, one of the games was uh, totally my fault, uh, but the other games were, I don't know. As always, you lose one game to Dikro, or Dikro. Mm-hmm. Um and then I lost a game to a Vinegrafter. Someone went Vinegrafter into um, Spore Spitter before I went Vinegrafter into Spore Spitter, and then I couldn't answer their their. They're unblockable sports bitter. Wow. But uh, yeah, I, it was, I don't know. I, I don't know what it told me about the format because I think my deck was so good because it was like influenced by draft packs or bot packs. It, yeah, it's tough to learn anything right now for sure. Um, it's it, it sure would be nice if we had another week for things to settle down before the big tournament. But uh, regardless... Uh, uh, regardless, this is the situation that we have. <laughs> I've only yeah. drafted once or twice in the last week as well. Um, so Cotillion is the expert here, uh, despite that bad run, because I, <laughs> I believe oh, no. I believe you've played more than both of us combined <laughs> lately. <laughs> well, today today was much better. That's good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is good. And I, that is... Um, this actually will lead into the card of the week because I did do another draft and then I, I posted the whole draft log into uh, the Discord in the Divergent Duplicate Draft, which is sort of a draft along thing that we sometimes do in the Discord where you can sort of follow along and pick your own cards and then post what uh, deck you end up with. And uh, Cotillion also did it and came out with a Xenon deck while I ended up with an Argent Port deck. Um, but one card that came up a bunch in the draft, uh, is going to be my card of the week. So my card of the week is Fatal Misstep. It's two shadow, fast spell. It says kill an enemy unit that was played this turn. Each player discards the bottom three cards of their deck. 
Okay, so okay, so what's what's interesting about this card? Well, I guess what's interesting about this card is I in this divergent uh, draft or in this draft that I posted, uh, I picked up three of these, and one of the reasons I picked up three of these is. I consider Cotillion like the prime champion of this card, of multiple missteps in their deck. And then I looked through Cotillion's deck, and he had a single misstep in his pool. And so I asked Cotillion about it, and he said, oh, I, I like misstep all right, but if I have any other interaction, I don't really want to play more than one. Um but I also kind of consider Fatal Misstep a card that is better in duplicates, but I don't, maybe that's just the wrong impression. Well, we've talked about this card a little bit before, and I think, uh, I, think I said that I kind of like having two missteps in a deck um, because uh, your opponent doesn't really expect the second one. Yes. And I, I think they're also a little better li- I don't know it's weird they're like a little better late so I think they'll end up being a fine top deck if you have multiples well I like being able to play one on turn two or three just for tempo um, and then maybe top deck one to to help me out later when the bigger threats are coming down um, it, it it is possible to have too many in your deck and then uh, you know, because they don't help you if you're behind on board. Um, so uh, it kind of depends on the deck, I guess. Uh, I would agree with Cotillion that if you have enough other interaction that works uh, when something is already on the board or when it's just it's just come down, then Fatal Misstep uh, is just less needed. I like picking up one early and then... So, you know, and, and so they would be in pack ones and one and four, right? Yes. So, you know, I have no problem with picking up one in, in pack one. I, I'd rather not pick up a second one in pack one. I'd rather wait until pack four to see what else I'm going to be getting in between. Um, you know, if, if I know I'm going to be in like a shoal dredger jet deck um, that once, uh, you know, Card cards in the void, um, then it may become a little bit more of a priority, and I may pick up multiples. But usually, yeah, I, I stand by if if I you know if I have other good removal like Grizzly Contest or an Execute or Combust, um, I'd much rather play those than a Fatal Misstep. But I, I will say, if it continues that barricade basher is so prevalent i may uh, be higher on fatal multiples of fatal misstep because it's a great play against a barricade basher when they when your opponent drops it on turn three you know that uh, it's cheap removal and you can plan for it if you see that your opponent um you know is playing with fire um you know, you can hold it up, hold up, hold up two power, turn three. They play Barricade Basher, discard a card, and then you immediately get rid of it. Um, yeah, that's a strong play. Yeah. But with like a p- play like that, this is what I don't understand because I hardly ever make plays like that because uh, I tend to just like, if I have a two drop, 
just like play my two drop instead of holding up power almost in all cases because like even it say say your opponent's on the play and then that you find out that they're fire and so then it's they play a two drop then it's your turn and you're like well they might have a barricade basher so i'm just gonna keep open two power and then what happens when they don't play a barricade basher on three yeah do you still use your misstep you have to right yeah i think you do well it depends on what they play you know i to me it depends on my hand if i have another way of dealing with a barricade basher maybe i don't hold up two power um to you know for fatal misstep for you know to thinking that they may have a barricade basher on turn three but if if i'm looking at my hand and they're playing fire and i I do not feel confident that I could compete with a barricade basher in any other way. I will plan for that worst case scenario, hold hold up two power for a fatal misstep just in case. And, you know, if I lose on tempo, I lose on tempo. But um, you know, at least I at least I'm I'm guaranteed you know, I'm I, I know I'm not screwed if they do play barricade basher. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah. What do you think of that scenario, Hats? Uh, I, I that's I think that's all I think that's all correct. Um, uh, I th- the thing about Barricade Basher is that if you play it on any turn after turn three, like its value starts going down. Like one of the real uh, issues with it is that it's so much strength on the board so quickly. Um, you can deal with a 5-5 five, five later on if someone plays it on turn 4 or 5. Um, I mean, you could if you have the cards to deal with it. It's just often a lot to deal with right away. So if you can absorb the tempo hit of leaving open to power, um, as long as, again, you don't have another clean answer to Basher, um, then... Uh, then you sort of might as well, because even a good player that senses, oh wait, I can't play a basher into a potential fatal misstep or I lose the game. If they don't, if they just don't play their basher, then they're also losing a lot of their tempo. Like their plan, if they're playing basher in their deck, is to win as quickly as possible. Probably, unless they're playing Praxis. But probably, if they're playing Basher, they want to win quickly. So if you are just slowing them down a little bit, that might be enough for you to win the game anyway. Okay. So then my other question I had, and this kind of goes back to this draft, um, just a thing I've been thinking about with the Fatal Misstep, is this deck in its pool has the three Fatal Missteps that I mentioned. It has four Dark Water Vines, two Sunset Priests, (laughs) two Shoal Dredgers, and then one Recursion in Triumphant Return. But... Like when I'm putting this deck together, I just keep getting this feeling that if I play all of this self discard, that I am going to we're we're going to run out of cards before I could possibly kill my opponent, and I have no way to go up on cards. I guess I guess my question, uh, since I haven't looked at the actual deck list is how are you how are you winning the game anyway you've got the two shoal treasures yes. what else is going on i have a spore spitter uh-huh um i have 
two Eye of Winters <laughs> if okay. you to not lose the game. Sure. Um, but it's I really... Mean, Eye of Winter is an I aggressive mean, card. Let's be, cl- let's be clear about Eye of Winter. Eye of Winter is an aggressive card. Any stun card is mostly aggressive. Okay. So that's helping you make attacks. Like that helps you make that that helps uh, tap down a uh, tap down is the wrong terminology. It helps Stop. get rid. It helps get rid of a chump blocker every turn for your soul dredgers. Yes. Yeah. So I th- that's my those are my ways. To, I mean, I have other units in the deck, but nothing nothing that stands out. Those are like my. Three win cons are the two shoal dredgers and the spore spitter. I think I, usually it's not going to matter how many cards you have left in your deck. Like there might be a, an occasional game that you that you drop because you run out of cards, but even with that much discard, I doubt that that's going to be the difference between a one game or not. I think you, I think you make your dark water vines as consistent as possible um, with all of the discard that you can, since you have four of them. And just be aggressive with them. It sounds fine to me. Okay. So, so you think I should just I should play all of that? You know. Yeah, I do. I mean, it would be great if you had like a, a wretched raven or something, so that you could make your opponent discard like anything that uh, sort of uh, broke the the parallel. Because the problem is that Shoal Dredger discards one from you, and then everything else is equal. You it's, you you make your opponent mill as much as you do. Um, but I would just make the synergies and the power of the deck as consistent as possible and not worry about running out of cards because even with that amount of discard, it's not going to usually be relevant. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I really wish I had picked up a nectar of unlife or something like one more recursion thing, but alas. Yeah, that's okay. I think yeah. it sounds strong to me. Like dark water vines is good, and then make and then making them consistently activate is also good. Yeah, I have also the two ravenous thorn beasts to eat the dark water vines. So yeah, yeah, that sounds like a good deck to me. Yeah, I think it'll. I think it'll be. It'll be okay. I I like that you didn't. Uh, you thought the I, two eye of winters were okay too. Is that too yeah. many? No, it's a good card. Yeah. Okay. It's done right. something every turn. It's awesome. Yeah, that's a great card. Yeah. Well, it gets expensive if you have two out and you're, like, stunning two things. You don't have to do it, I guess. And it's so cheap now since they reduced its only cost two to play now. Yeah, plus your shoal dredgers cost zero, so I wouldn't worry. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> All right. Um, so I guess keeping with the shadow theme, Cotillion, uh, what's your card of the week? Okay, my card of the week is Shadow Walk Cloak. Um, It is a two-power, one-shadow pip uh, weapon. It's 0-0, but it gives your unit that you suited on um, unblockable. And it also um, plunders when you play it. Um, So my card, you know, why I chose this as my card of the week is really... I wanted to get your opinion um, on how many... Is too many? Is it two? Is it three? Um, and where is it? Uh, do you main deck it? Do you put it in your market? Um, if you have a market, um, you know. Before we get into those, I can just you know, I I love to have this in at least one um, in my shadow decks. Um, you know, if I'm Stone Scar, 
You can put it on a barricade basher early. You can put it on um, a towering arachnid if you um, you know have one of those, which is a five attack, two defense uh, spider. Um, you can put it on your cheap war cry units. Um, you know, the later units are kind of obvious, like if you have a shoulder dredger, which we were just talking about, you can suit that up and give it unblockable. Um, but it basically creates a win condition on its own. Um, and then, you know, you have special cases for it. If you're in Feln, you can put it on a root ripper. Every time a root ripper attacks, it gets plus one attack and gives all your mandrakes um, plus one in overwhelm. Um, so every time you attack, it's 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 you know in, in buffing all your other units um, or at least your mandrake units. Same with Grubbot, slap a slap it on a Grubbot, and you're getting treasure troves. Um, anything with life steal. I mean, there's just so much that you can do with you know with this weapon um, that I like to have at least one. So you know, like like for me, I like to have at least one. Put it in your market if you have a market. Um, that's fine, but it's never a dead card because you know it gets it has plunder on it. So you know you can always pretty much do something with it, um, even if there isn't a great unit on your board that you want to give um, that you want to give unblockable. So what are your thoughts? Uh, it's sort of deck dependent for me. I do I do think it's an excellent card uh, in a lot of decks, but it's a real good example of a card that. Uh, that is better when you have a specific purpose for it. Because I do end up with um, like Argentport decks where really no single unit that I have in the deck um, is particularly valuable if it's unblockable. You know, then none of them have high that high strength. Like if I don't end up with a, any Shoal Dredgers, which happens. If I'm the sort of Argentport deck where I have a whole bunch of tiny flyers, then I don't need any more evasion. And then the Shadow Walk Cloak doesn't look as good. But if I do have a few things that would be game enders, if I um, if they're unblockable, then then yeah, Shadow Walk Cloak, at least the first one, is a necessity. And I, and I absolutely am looking to have one. And then it's main deck if I have a certain number of of things that I'm planning to put it on, or if, or it's market if I don't. And, uh, and, and I would rather get it on purpose. I also like Shadow Walk Cloak in the market because I like having a plunder card in the market because um, it's nice yeah. to be able to to plunder away one sigil uh, or rather uh, market away one sigil and then plunder away the second one sometimes if you're really flooding. It's just a nice tool to have in there and then it also has the benefit of maybe ending the game. But I don't think I've ever put two in a deck. I haven't been tempted to do that. Uh, since it is a two-card win condition, the Shadow Walk Cloak plus whatever you're winning the game with, it's rare for me to have a deck that that uh, absolutely wants to win that way. Although early on in the format after set 10 came out, after Empire of Glass was first released, I did have a handful of uh, Stone Scar decks that were so aggressive um, that really all I wanted to do was do some chip damage early on and then... Uh, and then and then get overwhelm or unblockable or something for reach, and so then that was the sort of deck that I wanted Shadow Walk Cloak because it was basically a fireball to the face because I only needed to attack once with something unblockable in a deck like that to win, and and so uh, having a Shadow Walk Cloak was you know sort of a whatever whatever Eternal's version of a fire axe <laughs> is. Uh, what was oh. the 
what was the card last time that did uh, damage equal to the strength of a of dark a, fire? Of a unit? Dark fire, basically a dark mm. fire. Yeah, yeah. Shadow of Cloak is yeah. I think is probably one of is in top running for me of cards that I lose to the most, but don't play that often. Um, I really only consider for myself this a market card in in most of my decks because I do I do see how it is like it can turn one of your units into a win condition and it does go so well with like as the as we mentioned the shoal dredger like I think that is a great way to win the game is play a shoal dredger and then get a shadow cloak and put it on a shoal dredger and then. There are very few specific answers to uh, to that kind of play and that kind of attack power hitting you every turn. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It just like I know other people have success with the card, so I've tried main decking it a couple times, and I I do think the plunder is surprisingly good, and it's not even sometimes that bad to like play this on your two drop to plunder to get your third power. And then, you know, you have a unblockable two, two or three, two. That's just like attacking every turn for the rest of the game or whatever. Um, so it, the card I think is better than it looks to me on face value. And a lot of good drafters are playing it, but it's still not my kind of card. So I don't play it that often. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to mention another time when I would almost certainly main deck Shadow Walk Cloak is if I'm uh, is if I'm playing. Oh, it would be nice if I remember the Watchwing support. If I'm playing a Watchwing support, uh, where uh, which is the uh, which is the Justice Relic that gives plus two plus two to the um, to the next weapon or unit in your deck whenever you play an attachment, because if Shadow Walk Cloak gets buffed, then it's uh, then it doesn't matter what you put it on. It's it's big. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm usually I usually when I have it, even one um, Watchwing support in my deck, I totally warp the cards that I cut from my deck uh, to being like anything that's not an attachment or or, or relic. Uh, and uh, and it, that's it's just a small thing. Um, yeah. Uh, it's just one of the few cases where you want, like, just like anything with Valkyrie Warp or just anything where it has to be in your deck to get the bonus, uh, then you want Shadow Walk Cloak actually in your deck. Like, if you have a lot of Warcry effects for some reason, there aren't really that many in this format, but if you have things that can give a bonus to a weapon, uh, then you want your Cloak in your deck because a Shadow Walk Cloak with a stat bonus is 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 really good. Yeah. No, that's a very good point. Yep. So, Hats, what's your card of the week? My card of the week is not a shadow card because I didn't know there was a theme. Uh, my card of the week is Unexpected Arrival. I don't remember whether we really talked about this to death, but that's never stopped me before. Uh, Unexpected Arrival is a two-time fast spell. It says, give one of your units plus one, plus one, a unit in your hand plus one, plus one, and a unit in your market plus one, plus one, and each of those has their cost reduced by one. Um, and this has been a tough card for me uh, to evaluate uh, when I draft it and when I play it for this entire format. I've seen people play it and do well with it. Uh, 
And when you re- when you look at how much value it gives you uh, total for one two cost spell, it's giving you plus three plus three across the board, uh, which is a permanent buff, and saving you three power. So it costs negative one total <laughs> um, for a plus three plus three permanent buff. It's just spread out and kind of hard to take advantage of. Uh, so I think I've only played one of these in one of my decks ever. But that deck did go seven wins, because and Unexpected Arrival was a big part of that, because I had a lot of early drops in that deck, and then a lot of later drops. I think it was uh, some sort of a Sentinel, Praxis Sentinel kind of thing. Um, and so using the Unexpected Arrival, whether or not it helped me win combat early in the early in the game helped me play my giant sentinels one turn earlier, at least one of them. And that was very, very effective. Um, but I've, I, unless I have that specific situation where my, where I've got a big dip in the middle of my curve and I want to bridge the gap from my two and three drops to my five and six drops, I never seem to be able to find room to actually play an unexpected arrival. Uh, and I'm, I'm curious if you, if, if you find folks have any other thoughts about that. Yeah, I. It's funny that you that the, <laughs> the last thing you mentioned really hits home because I like the card, but for some reason it just never makes my final deck. I you know I'm looking for cuts and I'm like, well, maybe I just cut unexpected arrival. It's you know it's it's a little conditional. Um, so it, it is. It's powerful. Whenever I do play it, I mean, sometimes you can, you know, use it on a, a corpse bloom um, or, you know, like a six cost sentinel. And yeah, I mean, it, it, when you do that and you're using it for ramp and you're buffing your sentinel even more, it's hard for an opponent to recover from that. But um, like I said, it's a little it's a little conditional. Um, so I don't mind cutting it from my deck. And it's also a little slow. Um I, I guess it really depends on if you have a lot of high-cost cards in your deck and in your market. Um, I mean, I'm looking at more as 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 a ramp, as, as something that's going to ramp. I don't really, I don't really value the buff that much. A one-one buff to me isn't that great in this format. It is a it's a good combat trick to keep in mind. Sometimes, because I, I find it easy to forget that this card exists when I'm trying to figure out what my opponent has in their hand. Um, and it can really be devastating if that plus one plus one is all the difference that they needed. Because uh, you even, cause like, it's not like uh, if your opponent has uh, like a finest hour in their hand and once they play the finest hour, they're like, oh, well, they won that combat, but now they don't have a finest hour. The, un- the unexpected arrival, if it keeps their unit alive, now continues to cause you problems. So it's 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 real rough getting beaten by an unexpected arrival. Um, so that's one that you just sort of have to keep in mind, even though uh, you you won't see it as often as some of the other pump spells. Yeah, well, I think that's one of the interesting things to about unexpected arrival is like outside of justice, there's like not that many fast speed ways to win a combat. You know, like. Obviously, there's ways to buff your units and fire, but most of them don't give a, a defense bonus. Um, so I kind of, I don't mind Unexpected Arrival, especially in time decks. 
um, that don't have a ton of interaction, which I think can happen in your time decks. You know, you just like don't have that many tricks or fast speed spells and um, unexpected arrival can just like play that role of fast speed interaction. And, and then I guess this is ramp in a, in a sense, but like, I, I like it just because it then allows you to double spells. So I haven't used it as much to like play my seven drop, but to like, you can play this card and then this is like sort of magical Christmas land, but then give your graph, you know, make your grafter cost one. Now it's like a three, three with charge and it's pulling something from your market, which is also cheaper. So, you know, you have a chance to like, um, you know, pull a card from a market and play a unit in the same turn because of unexpected arrivals. So I think I, I do really like the card um, when I'm in a time deck that has a market, uh, even if I'm not necessarily ramping to a big unit. It just like, as long as you have enough units and units in your market, you know, I think even just buffing your smaller, cheaper units that are now even cheaper, but bigger because they have the buff is, is like a nice way to get ahead with some double spelling and stuff, which this kind of opens up for you. Yeah, I think the potential of the card is really high. It's just sort of, it's just a little awkward uh, and hard to make all of that stuff happen in a way where you're not wasting power here and there. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I don't know. Maybe this is not fair. I just feel like one of the issues with the card is that it's in time. And <laughs> time's best card is like send for the reserves, which which doesn't necessarily work with this card you know what i mean no, like not at all yeah um i i feel like that's kind of holding the card back i think it's i think we might see this in a future draft pack for example in a different type of format and it'll be much better because it just is so much value in a in a small package it's kind of like the uh, the cards aren't necessarily analogous but it's like how metal um the one time uh fast spell it gives a unit invulnerable like that card goes up and down depending on sort of the texture of the format like sometimes it's just like an unbelievable trick that can just like blow people out and then other times it's like totally totally useless depending on sort of the context of the format and i feel like unexpected arrival uh will be that you know Okay. Yeah, that's enough about unexpected arrival. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think I think it's it's a cool card, but I agree. It, it's it's not played that often and not seen that often. And for some reason, it doesn't make my decks a lot. But yeah. Do you know what, where it falls on the like seven win decks? Like, does it show up on the charts at all? Not off the top of my head. Yeah. Okay. But maybe now that you asked, maybe I'll look into it and put it on the discord yeah that would be interesting all right and speaking of uh seven win charts and stuff um <laughs> this is our seven win run breakdown uh where we have a long-standing data collection project here at farming eternal where our listeners send in their seven win drafts 
to either farmingeternal at gmail.com or post them on the Seven Wind channel of the Farming Eternal Discord in either exported deck list or any kind of Eternal Warcry link. And then we take all this information, we put it in a spreadsheet so you can look at what factions are doing well and sort of if there's any movement in the metagame over the weeks. Um, as well as we can do some card-by-card -card analysis, though we haven't done that in a little while. Um, but maybe I'll do some this week. Um, and then we talk about stuff like that on the podcast, um, as well as give a shout out to everyone who sent in a, a list this week. So as it turned out, as I as my hunch hunch told me uh, in last episode, the names we read were in fact the exact same list of names as the previous episode. So this these are the list of names that we should have read in episode ninety three. So are we going to be playing catch up forever? Is that no, I'm no? See, I I big brain this. Okay. So what I did <laughs> is not tell John Holio about this episode. Okay. So then I'm going to send him the show notes for episode ninety five, and then he'll put in two weeks worth of names into that episode. Okay, that's great. Yeah. That's so. Don't good. worry, I've I've got it. It's all up here. It's all up I'm here. Glad. I was getting a little anxious. All right. So thank you to um, you probably even forgot that you got this seven win run, all of you. But uh, thank you, Abinego, Apricot Knight, Ash Acer, Beard Broken, Celtic Guardian 7, Shaded, uh, Collector, Cotillion, Darth Herman 2, D-Dubs, Fast Cookie, Full Robot, Gunner 116, Hats on Lamps, Ip Long No, Jed the Homerid, John Avon, John Holio, Meadow, Old Rich, Out on a Limb, Potomaro, Raven Dragon, Steve Irwin, Tempest Dragon King, and Vader. And thank you, as always, to John Holio um, for entering all the lists. We appreciate it. Cool. So I'm not going to talk anything about this because we have some stuff to do, and uh, we have no idea when Cotillion's wife's coming home. It's so, suspense. Uh, yeah. So we're going straight into our main topic. Uh, you know, everyone, I think, has been at the edge of their seats, waiting for Direwolf Digital's draft primer to make the appearance in this episode. So here it goes. So I think how we're going to structure this is uh, one of the, I think, the first things you'll notice if you do read uh, the draft primer that they put out is that they view this format as a tribal synergy format. And so they broke down their article into the five tribes, uh, the Grenadines, Valkyries, Sentinels, Soldiers, and Mandrakes. Um, and I think this is a little bit in, um, what's the word? In like sort of in opposition to how, I think if you've listened to us talk about this format in this episode, where we're often talking about an Argent port deck or, an, or a Rakano deck um, or a Felm deck. And, and so we, I think at least how the three of us have viewed this format is still in these like two color faction pairs as compared to these three color tribes that they're sort of laying out in their article. So I think we um, kind of wanted to start off by talking about that and kind of going through their article because they do bring up some interesting uh, synergies and cards and um, kind of discuss what 
yeah, I don't know. Just discuss the article a little bit. I I think the the first thing that I noticed from this article is that it very much reminds me of what I was hoping this draft format would be when I first started drafting it. Uh, I think we did an episode where we talked about the uh, the, the tribes and described them uh, more or less like Direwolf does here. Uh, because those were the early things that it seemed like they were trying to push, like the strategies that they were hoping that we would play. And then as time went on, it turned out that tribal synergies were sort of secondary to other things that were going on. Um, And so I think it's fascinating that they are publishing this now because they could have written it when the cards first came out before we knew anything about the draft format. And it would have been like, oh, I hope th- this is how the, tr- <laughs> how the how the format plays out. I hope it is like uh, this tiny, fierce Grenadine decks versus big, clunky Sentinel decks. That would be great. It didn't happen that way. And so um, I, I think it'll be interesting to see if people... I mean, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not hooked into like the... Uh, the social network of people playing eternal beyond this podcast really. So I'm not going to see any of this, but it would be, it would be interesting to hear from people who read this primer were like, Oh, I think I know what I'm doing going into the draft open and then tried to draft one of these decks and was like, wait, where are all the cards I need? <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, it, it is interesting. You know, I, before we go on, um, just in case we do uh, criticize the article too much, I, I do want to say that I do really appreciate that they did put out a draft primer. Um, they did this last month, or I guess maybe just two weeks ago, with the Expedition Open also. They put out like a primer on Expedition, and they had a few deck lists and sort of de- dis- described the main players. And... That article really got ragged on on Reddit of people being like these these um, you know like these deck lists are two weeks out of date and why would they put these like bad deck lists in this primer and stuff? But I still thought first off it was great that they were putting out any content content that showed that they were paying attention to the meta or you know things like that. But also, I mean. Obviously, they're they're not in a single article going to be able to explain like exactly what's going to happen at the um, uh, at the expedition open or whatever or what the top decks will be um, for a tournament that hasn't happened. Um, and while this draft primer is a little different in that they're sort of explaining the archetypes that they specifically put into draft, being that they develop. A draft environment. Um, I do think it's it's. I'm glad they do it, and I hope they do more like this and sort of explain what their vision of draft is. Yeah, I think it's lovely if they make this kind of strategy article a habit. I think ha- I think it's easy to criticize an article that's like if since this is literally the one draft article they've ever published as far as i know then it's like well this is out of date and it's a little silly uh but if they start doing regular draft uh, or rather uh, sorry regular strategy articles that are helpful to new players that's fantastic um uh, it's just a little strange to see this article right before a major tournament um 
and that's like the one time that they're trying to get people to play draft. I would love it if they got people to play draft. I guess this just goes back to what we were talking about before. Just get people playing draft <laughs> regularly in general, rather than hyping people up for one big tournament that only a few people are going to move on to the second day in, you know? Yeah. Anyway, let's talk about the content of this, because it's not all bad. It's just a little bit uh, uh, optimistic, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, like, just high level, if, for somebody reading this article, it, it, it's good from a, just to realize that there's certain synergies that yes. exist. Like, there, you know, there, you can get some Grenadine synergies. You can get some Valkyrie synergies. It's going to be tough to build a successful Grenadine tribal deck. Like, it, it, like, those are two different things. Like, you can go for some synergies in your deck as opposed to trying to build, you know, the, the super synerg synergistic Grenadine deck, which probably isn't going to happen. Um, so I, I would just keep that in mind if I'm a new player listening to this podcast or, you know, reading this article. Maybe that's what you take away from this article. Here are some synergies that exist that you maybe want to pay attention to. Yes. Yeah, and I think I'll, I guess maybe we'll, we'll just re read the article. It's not actually yeah. that, that yeah. long. No, it's it's pretty short. So yeah, let's just read the <laughs> Grenadine bit and then, and then, and oh, then talk well, about was, adjustments we would make, yeah? I was even going to sort of read the paragraph before that to oh, sort yeah. of uh, key off of what Cotillion said, which is um, they start out, uh, the article saying tribal synergies are a big part of the format. Mandrakes, Valkyries, Soldiers, Grenadine, and Sentinels. Drafting lots of units of each of the same type help us get lots of units that will work together. Um, but there's more to each of these tribes and their units. Um, so I, I think it's that's an interesting place to start of just like drafting lots of the same type of units is sort of baseline in this format from them which is not my opinion i kind of think of the tribes more as pockets of synergy sort of as we've been talking about as compared to like i'm drafting all of the same units i think there are a couple i think maybe mandrakes and soldiers to a certain extent are the exception to the rule because there are some strong tribal payoffs in both of those um and if you are able to draft all soldiers which is not always possible of course but you'd be like happy to do that because you can get really paid off for your whole deck being soldiers as compared to valkyries and grenadine um and sentinels where there's really yes you could theoretically do that but i don't know if the payoffs are there I think what they're trying to say, uh, other than just the having the tribal like unit type be the same, is that if you get if you draft units, uh, if you say draft a bunch of Grenadines, that they are naturally going to go together, even if there's it doesn't say all Grenadines get this bonus. Is um, and I think that that's only true to a certain extent, unfortunately. Like, pesky wire chewer can sacrifice another unit to do damage, right? And they say right here in the article, well, sparking vermin plays a snipe when it dies, so it's a great card to sacrifice. And if there were more synergy among the Grenadine 
like that, then that would then then yes, it would absolutely be true that if you got a bunch of grenadines, they would naturally work together. But that's like the one example. Like there aren't any other grenadine that love being sacrificed so much to spar- to pesky wire chewer other than uh, the one that leaves behind a one one with decay when it dies. Uh, it's not actual. There's not actually so much synergy, and Grenadine don't love being sacrificed so much that Wire Chewer is a great card. Like it is really good if you do end up with like a a, a lot of Grenadines that like being sacrificed, but those just don't really exist in the format the way that it is implied they do. So I think that's kind of true across the board. Is that it's just uh like the tribal synergies um, don't automatically line up when you just get a whole bunch of of grenadines or a whole bunch of sentinels you really do have to draft exactly the right support cards to make those things work which makes it end up feeling like uh faction archetypes rather than tribal archetypes in the end yes yeah and i i think um a great example of this is sort of one that um is in Mandrakes, they like talk about Shoal Dredger. But I almost think, of, I, I mean, Shoal Dredger goes great in a lot of decks, but it really goes well in Grenadine decks because you have all of these small crappy units that die <laughs> really easily. And a couple of ways to sacrifice your units to put them in the graveyard, making your Shoal Dredger cheaper. So like, that's a Mandrake, but I don't think of Shoal Dredger as a Mandrake card. I think of it as a card that goes in decks where you're trying to get a lot of your units into the graveyard, which uh, Grenadin can be one of those types of decks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's not the, 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 the real powerful synergies that ended up being in the format aren't, are, are sort of more emergent like that, that have more to do with the power of individual cards rather than anything that they printed on the cards trying to promote tribal synergies, which is, you know, uh, anyway, I think I've harped on it enough. All right, so let's go with it. So with Grenadine appearing primarily in Fire, Primal, and Shadow, we get lots of aggressive disposable bodies to work with. Uh, Berserk Grenadine like Cyberhound, which is a three Primal Primal, three three Grenadine Dog, says when one of your units dies, Cyberhound goes Berserk, and Fate, draw a card if you have a Granadin. Or Junk Obstructor, another one of the Berserk payoffs in Granadin, the 1-1 uh, one, one for 1 with Berserk and Plunder, uh, can generate extra value when they attack twice. Uh, with a Beacon of War, they'll pump on each attack, and with Grubbot, we get extra treasure troves to keep our hand loaded up. So Beacon of War is a relic, a three-fire relic that says when one of your units attacks, it gets plus one attack this turn and amplify one to exhaust an enemy unit. And Grubbot is the uh, fire primal um, uncommon. It's three fire primal two two. When a Grenadine hits the enemy player, create and draw a treasure trove. When Grubbot hits the enemy player, reduce the cost of each tre- treasure trove in your hand by one this turn. I mean, my one thought is that it's really hard to make contact with Grenadines. Um and that's the the sort of uh, that's this that's been the problem with drafting them as a tribe, uh, because junk obstructor just doesn't just doesn't hit the opponent um, very often. Like occasionally you can get junk obstructor and then turn to uh, side slash and do ten damage, 
but then they're blocking it next turn. <laughs> it doesn't mean that you won the game. Um, yeah. I've, I've seen Grubbot get out of control a couple of times when, when my opponent's been able to uh, really flood the board, but it's really hard to build that deck. It's just super difficult to get make everything come together to get all of the really aggressive early drops and then also uh, be able to clear the way for them to be able to attack effectively because nothing except for like stalking Cyberfang, which is occasionally a 4-4, that says Grenadine on it is actually a large unit that can break through the defense, and it, this is a this is a format that has regen. So uh, a lot of uh, your opponent's cards are going to be able to just absorb um, your Grenadine attacks and then stick around uh, to to uh, absorb the next attack as well. Yeah, uh, one of the I, it's interesting to me that they brought up Beacon of War because. While that card has played better than I thought it would in this format, I still don't really view it necessarily as a go-wide card. Um, not not that it doesn't work going wide, but just like... I don't know if playing this with a board of 1-1s, just like regular old Grenadine, really will boost them up enough to do any damage. I mean, I do. it does go well with like a lot of Rustlings, but I've found my opponents are mostly playing this, exhausting my units, and then hitting me with, like, six, five barricade bashers. Yeah, it's kind of the card that... Beacon of War tends to be the card that kills you, not the one that gets in a bunch of incremental damage with uh, with small units. Uh, but I will say that the one thing that would have made all of this make a lot more sense is if they had boosted Grenadine Drone in the, um, in the draft packs. Uh, mm-hmm. the the one the the one one for one fire that makes a one one when it comes into play uh, because that would have given Grenadine a, a a serious one drop that put a lot of power on the board right away uh, but they didn't you know they didn't they didn't put that in the format so um, it makes it difficult to to consistently make this happen yeah and actually yes. I, like the, the strongest Grenad or one of the strongest Grenadine cards that they did have was assembly line. And I think they that was boosted either ten or twenty times, and then they reduced it. This yeah, it was ten act. times last time, and it's five times now. There you go. I mean, because I, I I was able to build a successful Grenadine deck um, that got seven wins, and Assembly Line was almost the linchpin. It was you know Assembly Line and Cyber Combustion, which is uh, three. Um, Three primal sacrifice a unit to deal three damage to every unit, other than non other than grenadines. Um, so your grenadines survive, um, and then scrap metal fury. Those were like the three cards that were crucial. Um, but assembly line did so much work. And actually, Patamaro, I had Beacon of War in that one too. And you know when you have, you know, a spell that creates three grenadines, and then you already have some on the board. And then you use Beacon of War. At that point, you really do have a go-wide board. But again, I, I don't know how you get there without assembly line, to be honest. Yeah, yes. it's going to be tough to get that assembly line. It's an uncommon in packs two and three, so there's really no way you can count on getting a card like that to fill out your deck. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so they kind of talk about the other direction of Grenadine, um, and... They say another way to use our pesky Grenadine is to power up our spell power. Uh, sparking Sparking Vermin, uh, which is a uh, one primal one one with entomb play snipe, uh, plays the one damage snipe spell when it dies, making it a perfect card to sacrifice with a pesky wire chore. 
which is the two cost one two that you can that you sack to deal to a unit to deal two damage to a, to anything. Um, and with each plated hook claw we have, that snipe will deal an extra damage. And then also some of our biggest blowouts that Grenadin can pull off come from Cyber Combustion, which is the two primal spell that says sacrifice a unit to deal three damage to each non-Grenadin unit, wiping out our entire enemy army while our cybernetic friends remain immune from the damage. Um, I tried to draft uh, spell damage decks with Grenadin in them uh, near the beginning of the form, the very beginning of the format when all of these cards came out, and it was really tough to make it come together. It was like the combination that they're talking about here is having Sparking Vermin, some way of sacrificing it, like Wire 2 or and a Plated Hook Claw on the board, which is a 3-3 three, three for 4. Uh, and so it's a slow way to try to take over the game. <laughs> yeah. If, you're, if your opponent does nothing, turns one through four, then you're good with that strategy. <laughs> yeah, and you, cer- you certainly do have two damage that you can do to anything. That is uh, quite the combination there. <laughs> um, no, I guess a total of four damage split how you like, but still, like, that's not, that's fun, but it's not a... It's not game winning usually. Cyber combustion is powerful. That is a great card, but I have seen that uh, only great as a market card. I've been I've been wrecked by Better Up a few times uh, because uh, he had a cyber combustion in the market, but I've never seen it otherwise because um, Grenadins with Primal is just so hard to draft. Yes, yeah, and I think uh, two points. One is, I think, a point that we've talked about a lot on this podcast and we'll keep coming back to in this article is for all of these, um, for most of these tribes, one of the colors is a new color for that um, for that tribe. So in this case, Grenadin, Grenadin have never been in Primal until this set, which means in packs two and three, you cannot get any primal grenadin, um, which is a big issue um, because, I mean, one of the reasons, like we said at the beginning of this episode, is this format can be quite fast. And so trying to do these fancy things in three factions, you can sometimes get punished for that. And while there is a fair bit of fixing and like Bannerman and Seek Power are boosted, um, it's still ho- I still think it's hard to make like a true three faction deck that's taking advantage of all of these uh, tribal synergies. Yeah. So what we're saying is not don't draft Grenadin. A lot of the individual Grenadin cards are good for various reasons, but I wouldn't try to draft a Grenadin deck based on uh, the fact that some of the cards say Grenadins on them. Um, uh and and try to and and hope that all four packs are going to give you the cards to make that work. It's more like you draft an aggressive stone scar deck and you've got a Grenadin sub theme. Or actually I think that's it. That's the only <laughs> Grenadin thing that ever realistically happens. Yes. Yeah, and this is sort of meta talk a little bit. Be- part of the reason is that uh Skycrag at least I think in the three of our experiences, has not been a great deck. And we none of us have had a lot of luck in Skycrag. And then the other 
two color combination would be Felm, which I think there are Felm decks out there. I don't know if they are Grenadin <laughs> Felm decks. I don't think I've ever seen a Felm Grenadin deck. I've seen Skycrag, and like you've said, I've it, it's really hard to make it work. Um, occasionally, you see it be successful, but it's it's too unreliable. I I would think to bring to a tournament. Yeah, yeah. And then, like you said, uh, I do think the Stone Scar deck works because the best Grenadine in, in the game is in that uh, in that color combination in Metal Fang. Um, yeah. And I mean, we talked about this a little bit last week too, but cyber combustion surprisingly not as relevant as one would expect reading it because it seems like it should be an amazing card. I think part of that is because uh, two types of units that cause a lot of problems in this format are one, uh, big units like Barricade Besher, which this doesn't kill, and then small units which tend to have regen which this also doesn't kill. Yeah, and also your opponent's Grenadine, which this doesn't kill. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> um, Moving all on. right, so next is Valkyrie, <laughs> which is FJS. And it, um, the article says, the Valkyrie in Fire, Justice, and Shadow are about fearsome weapons and flying over the opponent to close out the game. They lean hard on aggressive flying units like Blood Boil Executioner, which is the 5-fire 3-2 with flying and charge, uh, to make sure that the opponent can't stop their flying onslaught, and utilize cards like Sludge Blade, um, which is the uh, five Shadow Shadow three three well weapon that has Valkyrie Warp plus one plus one and deadly, um, to keep enemy units in check and make sure that they don't lose the damage race. The Sludge Blade, of course, heavily rewards you for pulling off its Valkyrie Warp, which requires you to have at least one Valk in play. And what better way to ensure that than with cards like Steyr's Beckoning, which uh, is the three justice spell that plays two 1-1 one, one Valkyries with flying, giving you not one, but two Valkyries. Um, so um, I, know, I can't say this confidently about this version of the format, but these, these, this faction combination and Valkyries in general uh, has been my strongest and most consistent deck uh archetype uh since the release of set 10. yes i i agree would you say that is mostly an argent port it's it's largely an argent port thing but um having access to so many flyers um it's what it is is a combination of having a lot of removal available in all of these factions if you're drafting uh, all three of these colors or any two of these colors, then you get a lot of removal spells um, and relic weapons. Um, and then you have enough access to evasive units um, that you can close out games when, after you've eliminated your opponent's biggest threats. Uh, it's just a winning formula for, for limited. Cause, yes. Uh, and, and so uh, it doesn't hurt that... Uh, the uh that the key word the valkyrie warp is so good when it works <laughs> it's uh like anything that has valkyrie warp on it if you do warp it uh you win the game like sludge blade's not an impressive card until you have it be a 4-4 deadly but then it's real impressive and also two of the best uncommons in the format uh deathwing and metal fang are both 
Valkyries. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, this is, I think they're underplaying how, how effective the, um, the, uh, Valkyries are. They don't even, they, Valkyrie Warp is good, but nothing needs to say Valkyrie on it. Because uh, all of these units have flying, so they're automatically good limited cards. Yeah, and I think, you know, but not just Argentport, Vercano, um, Fire Justice is almost just as strong um, as Argentport. I mean, it may even be stronger uh, with Oni Hybrid in particular, um, which when you play it, um, what is it? It's a 3 1 uh, flyer that I think it costs four. And it recurs any weapon, any relic weapon or regular weapon that you've that, that's in your void. Um, and you know the, the the classic example is you play Oni Hybrid to recur a gravity glove that's already been amplified, um, say to like three three, and then you amplify it again, and all of a sudden you know you have a massive greatsword on your hands. Um, so that's a really powerful uh, synergy right there, and then. Um, hats, I think you posted to the seven wind channel, something as simple as, you know, it was Rakano. you play a bunch of, you know, humbug flyers, and then you had four Malaga munitions and you just suited up those flyers and won the game, right? Yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah, <laughs> that was it. I, I did have two, uh, drifting drones in there. So a lot of my flyers had lifesteal. Um, oh, there you go. <laughs> but, uh, but that really is all, of the, all that deck was, was tiny flyers and then munitions to put weapons on them. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess what's interesting to me is both <laughs> you guys didn't really talk about, uh, stone scar Valkyrie and, uh, the article sort of example of, using sludge blade to open up the air for your blood boil executioner which are two cards that i agree one is a valkyrie and one is a, a weapon with valkyrie warp are not actually cards that i had really ever put together in my mind um so i don't know if that's like lack of imagination on my part i just kind of find it interesting that that's the example they use well, I mean, did they link Blood Boil Executioner and Sludge Blade specifically? Well, uh, um, they lean hard on aggressive flying units like Blood Boil Executioner and then utilize cards like Sludge Blade to keep enemy units in check. Yeah. Mm. I mean, your, your, your fire Val- Valkyries, I, I think, are pretty expensive. You know, you have a Renegade Valkyrie, which is four... Oni Hybrid, which is four. Blood Boil, which is five. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, uh, they're pretty large. Yeah, I guess my... Themselves, and then to play really expensive relic weapons, like a five-cost sludge blade on top of that. I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe it'll work, but I I haven't seen it too often. Yeah, I guess that's my... my main point is that i i have found that stone scar valkyries has been i uh, i don't know i guess less of a, a thing because i have found a lot of the shadow valk stuff especially the weapons like sludge blade is like the prime example of the valkyrie warp thing uh because it's a, a common with valkyrie warp you know that require that really wants the the cheap justice Valkyries that they offer in. Um... Right. 
All right. And then uh, they talk a little bit about some cross-pollination here. Um, of course, sometimes relic weapons alone won't be enough to keep you alive while you attack in the air. So you'll want to prioritize picking up some good blockers, such as Razorbot, to fill out your non-Valkyrie slots in your Valkyrie deck. And of course, the flying Valkyrie are excellent at wielding weapons, such as ones created by Malaga Munitions, to help them end the game even faster. Yeah, I mean, it's fair. You want some blockers on the ground to deal with uh, enemy barricade bashers and and such. Although, it's not vital that you pick up some razor bots, I guess. <laughs> I yeah. haven't found that for, for Arjunport especially. Yeah, no, I would say, like, if you really just want a blocker, play um, Side Street Monitor. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, that's totally fine. <laughs> and the yep. three drop slot does get a little bit uh, clogged up when you're playing Valkyries, just because you want to play every copy of Steyr's Beckoning that you can. But yes, no, that's true. Anyway, so it's kind of interesting. I do think Malaga Munitions, like uh, Hats, or like Cotillion said, Hats had a great deck with that uh, recently, kind of playing around with that. But uh, yeah, giving your units uh, or your flyers weapons is pretty good way to win games um but i do think uh yeah thinking about non-valk slots in your valkyrie deck is not really the way that we approach the format i think i don't i don't go into a deck thinking okay here are my mandrake slots and my non-mandrake slots i think there's just not enough of anything to really be able to view deck building in that way i think yeah i think it does i do think that it changes how you evaluate a card like sludge blade pretty drastically though if you do have a lot of things that say valkyrie on them uh then then sludge blade is is a, a dramatically better card um but but no like if as far as um as far as drafting Valkyries goes, you're drafting Flyers and you're winning with Flyers, and you don't even really need to think of it as Valkyries. If you have a side street monitor, which is a Sentinel, but is also a, a, a reasonably efficient Flyer, you're still doing the thing that you intended to do by putting small Flyers in the air and and then just kind of winning. <laughs> um, so yeah, you don't you don't usually have to think of it as a Valkyrie deck. Uh, it's it's more like you just are playing flyers, and then you have a handful of cards like Sludge Blade that uh, that get a lot better if your deck came to came together in a specific way, um, and you have pockets of synergy, uh, like we were saying with the Grenadines. Except here, you don't need any pockets of synergy for it to be a good deck because you're playing small flyers and putting weapons on them. Yes. All right. Then the next tribe is Sentinels uh, in FTJ. Sentinels appearing in Fire, Time, and Justice are merciless machines fueled by ancient relics. A Sentinel deck with Barricade Basher and Red Plate Crashers will look to beat down hard and fast. But Sentinels can play longer games too. With Core Tap Maximizer, we get a huge boost of power if we have a relic allowing us to get, a bigger, to, get to bigger Sentinels. Side Street Monitor is a super versatile Sentinel flying over for damage, protecting itself with regen and allowing our Sentinels to attack and block, readying them all whenever we play a Relic. A key to drafting Sentinels means getting enough Relics to unlock these synergies. Some good common Relics to look out for include Amberlock and Okessa's Audience. And uh, Amberlock was a previous card of the week. It's a 
two cost relic that draws a card and then you can sack it for four to draw another card. And then Okessa's audience is a one cost um, colorless relic that uh, plunders and then you can sack it for two to draw a five five. Um, yeah, so this is kind of interesting because I agree with this first paragraph that barricade bashers and red plate crashers are a pretty good way to win the game. It's really interesting to me that they put the sentence, a key to drafting sentinels means getting enough relic to unlock these synergies. Um, has that been your experience with sentinels? Uh, you were talking about uh, Praxis Sentinels earlier on there, Cotillion. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I haven't noticed too many Relic Synergies with it. Um, I think there's one uh, Time Sentinel. I forget which one it is. It's a 2-4 that every time you play a Relic, all your other Sentinels get plus one, plus one. Um, you know, that's that's something, but I don't really notice too many relic synergies. Um, I think just the fact that there are a lot of relics in time and time has a lot of sentinels um, means that you're going to have some relics in your sentinels deck. Um, but I don't know if they necessarily, you know, are, are, are playing one off the other um, all that much. Yeah, um, it's I think it's mainly the, you know, maximizing your core tap maximizer is uh okay, yeah, the main thing yeah, yeah. i know side street monitor does allow you to ready your sentinels but <laughs> if you remember yeah. i don't think anyone has ever actually <laughs> used side street monitor to ready their sentinels i, I think know. a lot of people have played a relic and then attacked with side street monitor and then cursed themselves but i don't think anyone's ever done it the, the correct way ever <laughs> yeah well, it's also, I mean, I guess it's, like, cool that there's this tension, but, like, sometimes there's a lot of relics you want to play that don't allow you, that mean you can't play it after attacks. You know, like a Malaga Munitions. Like, you really want to play that before <laughs> you attack. Or, um, I mean, even, like, something as simple as Amberlock, right? Like... Sometimes it's really good to draw a card to see if you draw anything before attacking. Um, and so there's this weird tension with the Side Street Monitor's uh, flavor text. Yeah, Side Street Monitor just sort of has bonus text on it that it doesn't necessarily need. Uh, I've, I've very rarely seen that uh, affect a game in a meaningful way. I think really the main, uh, other than Cortat Maximizer, which is a very powerful card if you have Relics, uh, but also doesn't need to be in a Sentinel deck to get that power. <laughs> like, uh -huh. it's fine to just play a Maximizer with any deck that has Relics in it. Um, the, 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 the other one is Restorative Process, which is the two-time spell that draws an attachment and a Sentinel from your Void. And there are, like, very grindy Sentinel decks that want to play attachments as well, and then, then your Restorative Process is a, a really powerful way, to, like, late-game way, to um, overwhelm your opponent with value. I think that deck exists. I just don't think that it's one of the strongest archetypes. Uh, I don't think it really comes together. It's similar to the Granadin. It's just sort of a, uh, a thing that has support cards um, in the format, but it was never one of the top things that yeah. you were trying to do. And 
Another thing that we've mentioned before, I think one of the biggest issues with that is just the fact that almost every deck wants Okessa's audience. Yeah. And so there's no, you cannot be like, oh, fire time is open. I'm going to get some Okessa's audiences. No, because every other deck is also scooping those up. And there's really no other one power relics that you want to play <laughs> at all that yeah. you don't want to play them on one anyway like you could play your gravity glove on one and then a core tap maximizer and then you're ramping but like you don't you don't seriously do that you wait for to be able to amplify your gravity glove to actually kill something yes and then finally it says a laser blast is a great removal option to prioritize for a sentinel deck we can play it for just one when combined with a Sentinel, and it combines great with big Sentinel like Barricade Basher or the deadly Core Top Maximizer. That is absolutely true. Great point, Direwolf. Yes. Um, it is a great removal option. I will say the other weird thing about, for me with this is not to the same extent as Okessa's Audience, but, you know, like a lot of decks will play a Laser Blast if they have fire in them. Obviously, it's best when you have a lot of barricade bashers, or if you have a quartet maximizer. Though all fire decks will also play barricade basher, um, just about. So it's again, it's while it is a tribal payoff, I don't necessarily think of it as like this is only going in a sentinel's deck. Oh, certainly not. No, no, laser blast is just a good card. Yeah, and I think that's one of these issues where where it muddies these tribal what synergy waters because some of the best sort of tribal cards end up being good in multiple decks, and therefore you know you can't you don't get rewarded for going hard into a tribe necessarily with these like. With your this payoff. also this also just highlights how difficult it is to design a a, a limited format because you don't want a handful a whole bunch of useless cards like cards that aren't going to be good unless you have specific tribal synergies so you want cards to be good on their own um, but then if you have a bunch of cards that are good on their own then you don't have a lot of incentive to draft tribal synergies it's just uh, I think it's just a tremendously difficult thing to do to d design a draft format with all of these sort of interlocking mechanics. Uh, for all of that I criticize Direwolf for their design choices, I think they do an awfully good job um, uh, in general, Like, uh, and it, which is the reason why I play Eternal Limited. <laughs> it's like my main <laughs> video game thing that I do, uh, is that they do uh, is, is, uh, the mistakes that they make are, are because it is so difficult to make something with so many interlocking parts function the way you want it to yes yeah i 100 percent agree i mean and you can see that in the fact that we're we're still talking about you know you know there are still things to say about this format you know a long time we obviously we we criticize but we care <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, all right on to soldiers uh in time justice primal the soldiers in Time Justice and Primal are fierce fighters, but have some tricks up their sleeves as they maximize, amplify, and stun. For example, Maveloff Delete is a two-drop that is more than capable of running away with the game if you manage to do enough amplifying. 
The soldiers also employ versatile cards like Covenant Peacekeeper, uh, which is the three justice tutu that stuns an enemy unit, to either help slow down the enemy forces or keep yourself on the front foot to press the attack. Stormholt Battalion is the uh, three uh, justice primal tutu soldier with Aegis, summon kill a stunned enemy unit, is a perfect follow-up, not true, to a Covenant Peacekeeper, uh, finishing the job and getting another soldier to fight with. Actually, that's untrue. It is a perfect follow-up. I wouldn't put it in my deck, though. Um. <laughs> so, yeah, there's a few things to unpack. Uh, first off, I do agree. Mabel off the Elite is a two-drop that is more than capable of running away with the game. Uh, Covenant Peacekeeper is a great card to slow down the enemy forces. And then they do say that soldiers um one of the themes of soldiers is stun which is i guess the part i disagree with yeah i think the main payoff in a soldier stun deck is going to be your frost claw rider um which i don't see very often but you know that that what is it it's it's a base five five primal for uh, six normally right? cost six yeah and then if you have a stunned if there is a stunned unit on board, then it reduces down to four, um, which is certainly cheap. And then it gets plus two, plus two for each other of your other soldiers. So, you know, I, I mean, I think you can build around that. Um, but ideally, you don't just have one. You, maybe you, I, I think you want two. Um, but I, I mean, I, I, I think I've seen a soldier stun kind of tempo deck that does work. Um, it's very cheap, and maybe it it doesn't have that big payoff, Frostclaw Rider. But I mean, you really need a lot of peacekeepers, and um, what's the what's the four cost primal giant? Um, Frostkin. Yeah, Frostkin. You need a lot of those to make that deck work. I think where you know you're constantly playing a unit, stunning a unit, attacking, playing a unit, stunning a unit, attacking, and that does work. Yeah, no, I think that is a, I agree that I think that is a very viable uh, deck. I just don't see how Stormhold Battalion fits into that because like if, <laughs> no, if you're a soldier uh, stun tempo deck, like the unit is, is stunned, right? You don't need <laughs> to kill it. <laughs> like you don't need to kill it and then take a tempo loss by playing a two, two for three. No, yeah, it's a weird, it's a, Battalion is a weird card for exactly that reason. It's just, it's not what you need to be playing at that point in the game. You know, if it, if it had flying or something, then it would be like, oh, you kill the unit and then you have reach. But nope, you're just playing a 2-2. Two -two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so that's my, that's the thing is just if you're new to the format, I'd be, you, there, the stun cards are good. Um, I, but as, as they've been in every format, you know, as good, like Frostkin has been around for a long time. It's a great card. Covenant Peacekeeper, it's a cheaper, smaller Frostkin. It's a, a great card. It allows you to keep pressing the attack. Um, I don't think you need to get any cuter than that. Um, to do well. 
All right, and then the next thing is because of how strong Amplify cards are in the Soldier decks, they love to have lots of power available to them. Cards like Send for the Reserves are a really powerful tool to have at your disposal that only gets better the longer the game goes on. And with Mavaloft Quartermaster, we can keep refueling our hand, making it impossible to run out of things to do. Yeah, they, Soldier decks like to have lots of power avail- available to them but there are no soldier ramp cards. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess bring to focus is kind of it, sort of. Kind of, yeah. I mean, it's an amplify card, but wouldn't it be neat if there was a soldier that ramped uh, and then it would, like, create power for send the reserves? It just occurred to me. I've never thought about that before, but that would make a lot of sense. Yes. Yeah, I no, that would make a lot of sense. Um, I guess my the for me, the point is... I think Soldiers is one of the best decks. At least Huru amplifies one of the best decks. Um, so it doesn't need much more. Uh, one of the things that helps Soldiers is that it is the one tribe that Direwolf Digital went through and then just changed everything to Soldiers uh, for. So Soldiers, I think, are the easiest tribe to get a critical mass of cards for. Yeah, I think... I think in this latest version of the draft format, there's fewer soldiers in the draft packs than there were way back at the at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. But there are still a, a, some incidental soldiers for sure. Um, notably, the uh, the zero three flying soldier bird that gets plus two strength when uh, there's a stunned unit on the field uh, is a soldier, and so it gets soldier synergies and it takes advantage of the few little stun uh, synergies that do exist. Yeah. Yeah. So watch out. So when you kill that stunned unit with a Stormhalt Battalion, you can no longer <laughs> die. Yeah. Yeah. Stormhalt <laughs> Battalion will actively hurt your stun deck. Um, but uh, yeah. And then the other thing um, is Mavelof Quartermaster is always an interesting card for me because it is so powerful, but it's also kind of slow. Um, where are you guys on? With that card, um, I don't play that in soldier decks. I find that typically soldier decks want to be more aggressive, and Mavelof Quartermaster is kind of a you know a grindier uh, card, and it fits mm-hmm. in slower decks. Um, so I may put it in a slower deck that um, has some amplify in it, but I, I'm not putting it in a you know a, a soldier deck. Yeah. I don't. I don't think it's good in the Huru version of the deck because yeah, that one's that one tends to be pretty aggressive. I think the Elysian version of the Soldier deck, where which sort of has to be grindier because the time cards aren't as aggressive. Uh, I think Quartermaster can be fine. Yeah, um, you can see our previous episode for more thoughts on that. Yeah, our our, our, our big blockbuster epic Elysian <laughs> episode. Yeah, that <laughs> was a great. Try episode. to justify <laughs> crafting Elysian. <laughs> Which is probably um, the worst where we try, archetype. we beg, we plead people to play Elysian. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, then uh, our final tribe. Wow, we've we've done it almost. We've done it almost. Is uh, Mandrakes, which is uh, Time Primal Shadow. Last but certainly not least, we have the Mandrakes sprouting up in Time Primal and Shadow. The Mandrakes are all about ultimates and powering themselves up via cards in the void. 
If you love grinding people out by slowly powering up your units over time, Mandrakes are the tribe for you. They are also the most represented tribe for the regen ability, giving them good longevity against attacking enemy units. Um, one of the apparent weaknesses of Mandrakes would seem to be their lack of flying units, but they can get around that with cards like Draft Pack card Spore Spitter, uh, which is the 6 Shadow Shadow 4-4 four four that gets unblockable in Lifesteal if the enemy has 10 cards in their Void or more. Um, also, if you manage to get enough cards in the enemy Void, either through effects like Darkwater Vines Ultimate or just by natural circumstances of playing a longer game, Spore Spitter is more than capable of finishing off the enemy player on a clogged up board. Um, of course, to get to these long games, you'll want to make sure that you prioritize ways of, to deal with enemy flyers in your Mandrake deck with cards like Ghastly Perfume and Fatal Misstep playing an important role. Yeah, this is all basically true. You just don't need any Mandrake synergy. Yes. And so what do you, what do you mean by that? I mean that Darkwater Vines is fine if no other card in your deck says mandrake on it uh like it's fine that's a good card um and spore spitter is a good finisher if you have discard in your deck which is often supplied by dark water binds but more often is uh it is is like fatal misstep or sunset priest or something like that you just don't need to get a bunch of mandrakes together to be playing for the for the good mandrake cards to be good i think is what yes. I'm saying. You, if you do get the Mandrake deck together, like you get the the one that uh, gives you life steal. Uh, you have a couple of root rippers, which give everything plus one and overwhelm every time they attack. Like if you manage to get all of those cards, most of which are uncommon, then that might be the very best archetype in the whole game. It's really hard to beat a good Mandrake deck. But in all of the draft games I've played since the beginning of set of the set ten uh, block. I may have played against the Mandrake deck twice. Yes. And I think I played against it more early on when people were trying to force it a lot because they maybe thought that there were tribal themes in the set. Yeah. And then as the format has gone on, I've played it less. I will say that Shab um, has championed this deck throughout the format and recently wrote an article about how Zine and Mandrakes has changed um, since his last article about mm -hmm. Zine and Mandrakes. Um, so I do think some people are playing this deck, but I have tended to fall in line with you where it's too tough of a deck to get in, um, though it is powerful if you get it. I, I think that the core of, uh, of the deck is is Darkwater Vines uh, and Shoal Dredger and some way of making other discards and then maybe Spore Spitter as another finisher. Like, that's a very solid deck, is you've got early game defense and then late game powerhouses, and I think that's one of the really strong things that you can do in the format. It's just sort of optional whether you go for any sort of particular Mandrake synergy while you're, while you're doing that. And you don't have to have time or primal be your second faction if you're doing that strategy. It can be fire or justice as well. 
Yes. Yeah, I agree. That little core package you're talking about, you know, that, that's not really getting into the different ultimate abilities or um, or things like that, um, which, you know, are more core to Mandrakes. But, um, yeah, are the part that I find difficult. You know, like Darkwater Vine is one of the best ways to do ultimate. Yeah, the sort of the best ultimate because they're they're a common in set ten and it's pretty easy to get their ultimate off, um, and they're pretty plentiful. But I don't know, it's I feel like it's hard to build a deck around ultimates because there aren't that many dark water vine style cards with like incidental ultimates. Um, which is one issue. And then the other interesting thing about this, we talked about this a little bit in our last episode, is they sort of boosted a couple of these like transform Mandrake synergies, um, which they don't really mention in this article at all. But that is another sort of Mandrake sub-theme that has been boosted in this new format. Yeah, it has. The The only card that really cares about it, though, is an uncommon. So, uh, it, again, it's sort of a thing that Mandrakes can capably do, but you're just not going to run into it very often, and you're not going to be able to draft it when you want to. All right, and then the final uh, thing I wanted to say about Mandrakes, and I think Tillian might be able to speak to this as a champion of this card of sorts, is I do know, um, I did see a couple people ask about Little Seed, uh, which is the one primal O2 ultimate. When you start your turn with Little Seed for the fifth time, it gets plus five, plus five, and overwhelm. And I think if you're new to this format, you might look at uh, Little Seed and think it's totally unplayable as a one-cost card that does nothing um, and can die fairly easily. But I know that you have played these uh what's your opinion on little seed right now doing yeah I, I still like the card um i i would like it a lot more if i felt like the format slowed down at all and i don't know if we're gonna be able to get a good gauge on that in time for the tournament um but you know as it is it is a it is an o2 it can attack it takes what four turns if you play it on turn one, it's very powerful um, because that gives you time to get its ultimate out. Um, but regardless, and I mean, even when it's across the board, so when my opponent plays it, you're always looking at it. You can always see when your opponents hover over one of your units, you can always see that they're, you know, they're counting down. It's a clock for them and it's a magnet for removal. So, you know, you're playing a one-cost unit that maybe they have to use a three-cost um, removal on to prevent it. So, you know, it's a little efficient in that way. And then if you get its ultimate to go off, um, yeah, I mean, it, it is. It's, it's going to be one of the biggest things on the board, if not the biggest. Um, and then, you know, you're probably going to be in Felm. You're probably going to be in Primal Shadow. So you have, you know, maybe a Triumphant Return or a Shoal Stirrings to recur it. Um, and the clock stays the same. You know, if it only has one more turn to go, um, then it only has one more turn to go. So, you know, it, it, I still like the card. It is a little slow. I think you have to be careful. Um, you know, you need to have other ways to interact with your opponent early on in the game. Um, that can't be, you know, your, you know, uh, your most most of your early drops. Um, but it's still decent, and I'm, you know, I would I would I would still play it. 
All right, cool. And then finally, they mention um, the market matters. Another key facet of Empire of Glass Draft is building a strong market. This is a great place to value getting unique but niche options available to you, such as Blackout the Skies to help kill multiple enemy flying units, or Frostwave to help lock out a couple of units and win the race. Um, so I guess the my final couple questions is uh, just do you guys have any tips on using markets in this format? Uh, I have a couple. I think mostly you want to use the market the way they indicate here, where uh, situational cards that are are potentially very powerful uh, can be in the market, and then um, uh, and then you uh, you just sort of have uh, a lot of options available to you. The grafters are only uncommon. It's it's you'll you'll often have a grafter or two in your draft deck uh, and using your grafters effectively can be a really uh, can, can give you a huge edge over people who are maybe not using them quite as effectively. I like to have a sigil in my market so that um, if I have four drops in my hand and a grafter on the board, I can use my turn three to get a sigil and, and smooth out my curve. It's a really powerful thing that you can do. And if you, if you do end up with multiple ways of accessing the market, then you can put a powerful card in your market and essentially have more than one copy of it because you'll, you'll, you'll draw it in more games. And one of my favorite things to do is if I have a multi-faction card that I want to play, a Metal Fang, say, and I have um, two, uh, two ways of getting it out of the uh, two uh, market access cards, like one in Fire and one in Shadow, I like having it in the market so that I can draw it every game rather than just hoping to draw it. Those are the ways that I use the market. But um, if I only have one market access card, just one grafter, uh, then uh, I won't do that. I, I'll put um, only the um, only the cards in my market that are more niche or uh, situational. And also because uh, because grafters um, can get factionless cards out of the market, it's nice to pick up things like snipe or uh, rail driver the the three three weapon for five and snipe just does one damage to something um because you don't want to snipe main deck it's not a powerful card but sometimes you can kill something with it and then it's a really great thing to have access to yeah i think that's all true um you know one card that we've talked about a lot is uh, spore spitter which is i think a card that often goes into the market um and while that's not like a obviously situational card because it's a unit, but it's so much more powerful late game um, that it's a, a good card to like have in your shadow market because while you could play it on six, you'd much rather just like wait until your opponent has 10 cards in their void to play it. So you mm -hmm. don't mind uh, not drawing it. So, you know, like just normal good market stuff, you know, play... <laughs> Expensive spells go well in the market, too. Um, yeah, so I think that's... And then the other one thing is also to just remember that the grafters do not only draw a card from your market, but do manipulate that card in some way. And so you can also put cards that really benefit from whatever they can give. So, I mean, Vine Grafter is one of the best... is probably the best grafter, but, you know, like, a Spore Spitter does really well. 
with um, with regen because you want it to stay alive so you can win the game with it. Um, so things like that are good to keep in mind too. Yeah, if you're lucky enough to have a, a flyer in Primal, then you can give it Berserk with Ragecraft or that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. That's another great example. Any other thoughts about the market, Cotillion? Yeah, the only other thing I would mention is just, you know, as you proceed through your draft, um, I think you need to pay more and more attention to your market um, because, you know, your your main deck is being built and you can see it being formed. And but so at that point, you kind of want to pay attention. OK, rather than taking, um, I don't know, a, a fourth Malaga munitions, maybe instead at that point, you start focusing on your market and say, well, you know, instead, maybe I'll take this hook blade infuser, um, which I wouldn't main deck, but it's great in the market with a vine grafter, for instance. So, you know, don't, you know, at, at some point in the draft, if you have market access, you need to be thinking about it. And you should probably be picking cards specifically for your market. Um, and those cards may not be the best cards in the pack at that point, but you may not need the best card in that pack, if that makes sense. Yeah, I have legitimately taken snipes over sort of medium filler cards once I have a couple of like like once I have two grafters in two different factions because I'm like, I don't know, sometimes I'm going to need a snipe and this is great. <laughs> yep. Yeah. All right, so we move on to our our questions. Oh, just in in terms of time, I think we may have to uh, give quick answers to these. Yeah, I think that they are all quick answerable because Steve Irwin's is too, is kind of too bro- big of a question. Yeah, and plus we did a whole episode on it. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, let's we can we can we can give a we can give some uh, sort of a quick rapid fire answers to these questions. Uh, so this is these are the results of uh, asking on the Discord what uh, what folks wanted us to cover in this episode. Yes, because at, at that time we didn't have a draft primer from Direwolf Digital, so we literally had zero show notes. Right, right. So uh, first off is Tempest Dragon King who asks. What is the strategy you're most afraid of when in a draft game? Minus people uh, playing auto tread. <laughs> oh. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we almost went the whole episode without mentioning auto tread. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I will start. I think we, we kind of discussed beforehand, but for me, it's a turn two Mabel off delete or turn one shock troop into turn two Mabel off delete. There's just so much potential there that it can be tough to deal with. Yeah, I think that that's my answer too. Turn one shock troop, turn two Mabel off delete, turn three, you know, what are you facing? You're facing a gravity glove. Yeah, turn three, a pause. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Turn three, pause. Hardiness, gravity glove, call on allies. Yeah. I mean, even martial efficiency at that point, you can play it. I mean, it's, yeah, that that's scary to see across the board. 
Yeah, then the other one card is just a Vine Grafter. Any, any time an opponent plays a Vine Grafter, it's just scary. Vine gra- turn two Vine Grafter into turn three, get something from the market, and I'm like, oh, this is going to be an uphill game. <laughs> it's going to be rough. Yeah. <laughs> Do I have any removal that just completely destroys something? No? Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right, well... Hopefully I make the turn six to play this. <laughs> the Santa market. market that has been <laughs> recently destroyed. Yeah, yeah, it's rough. Um, all right, then um, Abednego asks, how can you play a tribal synergy and or slower deck in this fast meta? Um, which non-aggro decks are reliable slash viable at the moment? Hmm. So Abednego probably is on board with the format being faster than it was before. Yeah, I would still say that Argentport Flyers is a really good answer to that um, because you can uh, you're not putting as much strength on the board as the real aggro decks, but you are you do tend to end up with a lot of uh, chump blockers, so you can reasonably race, and you do, and you end up with enough removal, um, even with sent to market nerfed that you can uh, that you can get rid of some of the biggest threats. Because the aggro decks in this format usually aren't go-wide decks. They're usually, like, put down a basher or, or put a huge weapon on something decks. Uh, so, like, individual removal cards uh, execute and so forth. Fatal misstep uh, can, can work. Yes. Yeah, it, that's an interesting answer uh, because I do think there are certain... Argent port flyer decks that could be categorized as aggressive or fast. Yeah, I mean, I'm really just thinking of the fire decks as being the real aggressive decks because they do like that. Those you have to sort of define aggro decks as the most aggressive decks, and I think Rakano is the most aggressive deck, and maybe sometimes Praxis. Uh, yeah. And that's what that's what you're really afraid of is somebody coming out of the gate with um, with like. Uh, a strong two drop and then basher and then ways to pump those cards uh, and just never being able to recover. Um, and, yeah. And so like Argent port can get some power on the board for sure, but not at the same rate. So you're going to be the control deck in that situation. Yeah. Sort of, I guess what's in what's this sort of just came to me, but like, I think one of the int- reasons Argent port flyers can do so well is it can put on a lot of pressure, but also like if you build your deck to beat aggressive fire decks, it's hard to build your deck to be able to beat aggressive fire decks and aggressive flyer decks. Um, yeah, yeah, you're attacking from a couple angles. Yeah, yeah, and so that's like what that's a sweet spot that the Argentport flyer deck can fill is like you can play cards like Razorbot to stop, you know, bashers or aggressive fire decks while also putting on a very hard-to-deal-with clock in the air. I think really the answer to this question is everything that we've talked about during this episode of other effective things to do. Like that sort of core of Darkwater Vine's Shoal Dredger deck. Shoal Dredger is a 7-6. It stops 5-5s really well. Um, yes. And, and so that's, that's a thing that... Uh, that's why it's one of the other good archetypes is that it fights the aggro decks pretty effectively. Darkwater Vines chump blocks twice at its floor, even if it doesn't ever get buffed. And, um, and then, you know, you're, you've got your, uh, 
you've got your razor bot and uh ghastly perfume kind of things that you can do like uh, it's i mean i guess get razor bot ghastly perfume isn't the craziest combo in the world but um it's part of your sort of defensive like film deck strategy yeah and so i guess yeah and to further answer i think that's one of the things uh that we've sort of harped on on this episode is that you know like you might not be able to build these platonic ideal um, tribal decks that uh, Direwolf is laying out in this article. And what you really need to focus on, because these some of these non-tribal decks are so powerful, are just these like little pockets of synergies. Like you need to find ways to you need to build your decks so that you can can stem the bleeding from these aggro decks and then have these powerful synergies of their own to then you know turn the corner and attack yeah just sort of be aware that the that aggro decks are attacking it kind of in a specific way they're going to come at you with big units on the ground like basher uh and then small units in the air and if you can sort of plan for both things it sounds like it's impossible but um uh it, it means that cards like Cortat maximizer are good not just because of what the text says on them, but because they kill bashers. <laughs> you yes. know, like you're you're drafting cards that deal with enemy threats that are in this actual format effectively, not just sort of drafting generically good cards. I wouldn't be taking Quartet Maximizers that high in a format without Basher, but in this one, I'm like, well, even if it doesn't ramp, it's good against Basher. Yeah, exactly. Or then cards like, uh, oh, geez, what's Side Street Monitor? You know, that's just a, a good card because it has regen and has flying, and so it can deal with a couple small flyers. And it has a two strength, so if you throw a finest hour or a martial efficiency on it, it kills a basher. Yes. Specifically right. a basher. <laughs> and then uh, Abinego wants to know, Hats, how will an understanding of dichromatic glass help players win big in the 5K Open? Well, my answer to that is that multiple ultra-thin layers of different metals, such as gold or silver, oxides of such metals as titanium, chromium, aluminum, zirconium, or magnesium, or silica, are vaporized by an electron beam in a vacuum chamber uh, when you are making modern dichroic glass. Then the vapor then condenses on the surface of the glass in the form of a crystal structure. A protective layer of, of quartz crystal is sometimes added, and uh, of course, and then other variants of such physical vapor deposition coatings are also possible. The finished glass can have as many as 30 to 50 layers of these materials, yet the thickness of the total coating is approximately 30 to 35 millionths of an inch. And the coating that is created is very similar to a gemstone, and if you carefully control the thickness, uh, different colors may be obtained. So that would be my answer. Oh. Uh. Agreed. I was going to say, when <laughs> you lose your winning in to Dicro, you can at least know that your opponent probably couldn't pronounce it correctly. <laughs> That's another great answer. <laughs> you can console yourself. <laughs> With either your vast knowledge of how to make dichromatic glass or... <laughs> The superior superiority you feel knowing that you are the only one who can pronounce it correctly. <laughs> I feel very inferior right now after that. 
I really the only really the only credit I deserve for that is my patience. <laughs> well, hey, to be fair, um, anyone who's made it this far into the show obviously has a significant amount of patience. <laughs> um so yeah and then finally steve Irwin, um patron of the show wants to remind everyone that we did a whole episode on playing around uh common and uncommon tricks and when and when you shouldn't play around them and just wants everyone to know that if they have any questions on the subject they should in fact just go listen to our episode on the subject yeah, that's probably true. I I I should say that that uh, there are like if someone is in fire and there's a pause, it's probably side slash. If they're in time and there's a pause, it's probably Cobra Gear. If they're in justice, probably martial efficiency or finest hour. Uh, primal, who knows? Uh, probably hardiness, actually. And then in shadow. Uh, I don't think there is anything great, so I don't think there's anything you particularly have to play around. But if they have a pause and they're in turn one and they just have shadow, uh, then that's uh, um, uh, what's the skies card, the thing that kills flyers? Uh, black out the skies. Black out the. It's probably it's almost certainly black out the skies. <laughs> I don't think shadow has any good tricks though, combat tricks. But if you just want to play around one thing in each faction, those are my recommendations. Yeah. No, I, I think that's great. Do you have any thoughts, Cotillion? No, I think that's it. Um, other than Fatal Misstep, which we've already talked about. Yeah, yeah you do have to play really around that. Yeah, it's but not the, a combat trick. You do with, need to play the, around it. The issue with that one is it's like once you see the pause, it's already too late. Yeah, sometimes I'll play a, a cheap unit that I don't really care about that I would rather not play just to see if they have a pause. Yes. <laughs> I don't know if it helps me or not doing it, but that's that's what I do. Yeah, no, that that's that's a good tip too. All right, cool. So I think that's that's our show here. Thank you, uh, Katilian, for coming on. We really appreciate it. It was great. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, and then thanks again to everyone who listened, to all our patrons for making this show a success. And uh, a reminder to those who are not patrons to give us a five-star rating and review on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. You can join us in our Discord, uh, link in the show notes. I think uh, before or before the draft uh, tournament, I'm going to do one more uh, divergent duplicate draft, so you can play along with that if you'd like. Um, and then finally, thumbs up all of Raven Dragon's Reddit posts um, on Reddit. We'd really appreciate that. And don't forget to send in all of your seven-win deck lists you do this week to farmingeternal at gmail.com. And remember to keep on farming. Have a good night. Good night. Goodbye.